0: Heavenly Father, uh, we need your mercy. It's new every morning, and the snow outside reminds us that as season gives way to season, you're a faithful God to us, a God who brings rain on the just and the unjust as well as snow. And God, we need your mercy now, and we need you to help us focus in, help us hear from your word, help us hear from your scriptures to learn these things and open up our minds and our hearts to receive them. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Amen. So if you've been with us the last two weeks, we've been going over probably the most important doctrine in all of the Bible. The doctrine of justification. Justification is the teaching of the Bible that on the cross, Jesus actually accomplished something. That on the cross, there was a great exchange. On the cross, when Jesus died, we're told that our sins were credited to Jesus and he was punished in our place. But the exchange goes the other way as well, that Jesus on the cross when he was dying was also crediting righteousness, the righteousness from his perfect life, his perfect obedient life to God was then credited to us who have faith in Jesus and who have faith in that accomplished work that he finished on the cross. And we saw how important that teaching was, that teaching of justification. And today I want to dive into another very important teaching of the Bible, the biblical teaching of baptism. And now last week, remember, we saw in Abraham this story of how God justifies by faith in the Old Testament, in the story of Abraham, we saw that God gave Abraham this sign. It was the sign of circumcision and that circumcision according to Paul was in a way linked to and inseparable from the biblical teaching of justification. And these are things right we usually separate. We usually separate hey, the great truths of the Bible revealed over here and then the signs given by God over here, but Paul brought these two together. And just to remind us of this, this was in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Paul said that he, speaking about Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So you see Paul making the connection there between circumcision, this Old Testament sign, and this great truth of a righteousness, a justification given by God through faith. And now the reason today that we want to talk about baptism, the sign given by Jesus, is because we often think of these signs that we see in the Bible, including baptism today, and we see those really as secondary issues. Or we see them as things that are minor and irrelevant, and they just only really lead to debates anyway, so why talk about them? And now to be sure, right, baptism is a secondary issue, It is a secondary issue, meaning good Christians can disagree about baptism and the other people that we disagree with are still Christians, even though that they're wrong, right? Even though wrong views of baptism prevail, we still can be Christians and be in unity. Now, we at Deer Creek teach and practice infant baptism as well as believer's baptism so we're going to talk about what that means a little bit later on. But what this also means about baptism being a second, secondary issue is there's not a litmus test in heaven that we're all going to have to answer that says, all right, were you a believers-only Baptist or were you an infant Baptist? And you can't come into the pearly gates unless you answer that question right. So baptism is secondary. However, here's what I want to point out. That just because the Bible says that something is secondary and it isn't primary, doesn't mean that it's not vitally important, okay? When we focus on only primary issues as well, we do run a risk. When we only focus on primary issues and overlook all other teachings of the Bible, we miss out and overlook on extremely important teachings. And what we inadvertently do is we take this big, comprehensive, full-orbed richness that God has revealed to us in 66 books of the Bible, and we shrink it down and become biblical minimalists. And we say, all right, does does it not have to do with salvation? Then it's not important. If it only has something to do with salvation, then let's not talk about it. But you see what we do. We shrink the Bible And we become biblical minimalists. And I want us to think in terms of being Bible maximalists, exploring everything the Bible has to say about every subject because God chose to reveal it to us. And I think that baptism is extremely relevant. But why is it relevant? Well, our view of what's relevant can be really skewed, can't it? For instance, is anybody uh, familiar with the debate? It, t- it happened, as a theological debate. You probably heard of it before. It happened in the Middle Ages about how many angels can dance on the head of a needle. Anybody heard that? And we think of that and we're like, there could not be a more irrelevant question in the world. But the question is actually super fascinating. And it's super relevant. And you're not gonna believe me, but I'm gonna try and prove it to you, okay? Here's the reality. The Bible speaks about angels which are created spiritual beings. And these angels were ter- told, are told interact with the created physical world. Now, the people in the Middle Ages, they were thinking, this is really wild. How do spiritual beings that don't have bodies and don't take up space like us, how do they interact with a physical, tangible world? Could that theoretically mean that a thousand of these angels can be compressed into no space the size smaller than the head of a needle? That's amazing! Right? That is mind-blowing. And I get you guys don't agree with me here. But anyway, here's the point I'm trying to make, that there are things about the Bible, like baptism, that the Bible talks about that are extremely relevant, even when we don't think that they are. Okay? And baptism, I'm going to argue, is relevant because Jesus talks about it and because it's a sign given by God for us that can actually mean deep comfort and deep assurance in our faith. So we're going to ask four questions this morning about baptism. It's going to be what, what, who, and so what? What, what, who, and so what? What is baptism? What is baptism? What does baptism represent? That's question number two. Third question, who should receive baptism? This is where I'm going to get in trouble with a lot of you, okay? And then, so what? What should I take from all this? So let's dive into that first question. What is baptism? Now, to answer that question, I have to have you think of the Bible as a puzzle, okay? Because unfortunately, we do not have one verse in the Bible that says baptism is blank. So we have to approach the Bible like a puzzle, and what we have to do is we have to take all the different pieces that we see by Baptism mentioned in the Bible, piece them together in order to get a comprehensive picture and say that is what baptism is. And I want to argue there are three components that you have to see, three puzzle pieces. The first is this the first component of baptism is that baptism isn't new. Baptism isn't new. Now you don't have to go far into the New Testament to realize that baptism was something that people knew about during the first century when Jesus began his ministry. We're told in Matthew chapter 3, there's this man named uh, John, and he's going to prepare the way of Jesus. And we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region around the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were Baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So, see, John the Baptist practiced baptism before Jesus commanded it in his public ministry. Baptism was something that was recognizable, it was knowable, and it was familiar to the people who lived during the time of Jesus before Jesus hit the scene. So, that's what I want you to see here that baptism was not new, and in fact, as it happens, baptism was actually a practice that reaches all the way back into the Old Testament. One such instance of this comes from the book 2 Kings, and there we're told about this king whose name is Naaman, or sorry, Naaman. Naaman was a commander of the Syrian army, so he was a Gentile. And also we know that he had leprosy. And he had actually abducted a young servant girl from Israel and made her the slave to his wife. And this servant girl told Naaman that he could be cleansed of his leprosy and have his leprosy removed if he went and visited this prophet in Israel named Elisha. So Naaman, he's very curious about this. He goes and he visits Elijah. Elisha sees him from far away, and Elijah, we're told, sent a messenger to him, saying, "'Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored.'" And you shall be clean. And then we see Naaman hears this story. He goes to the river Jordan. And he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. That word dipped is the Greek word baptizo, meaning baptized. Okay? According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So what you see here, right, is... In this story, the author is intentionally making a connection between washing and baptizing. Washing and baptizing with the result that the person who does so will be made clean. And now, these washings, these baptisms show up throughout the Old Testament. There's actually 11 of them that are commanded of the people of God to perform in their ritual ceremonies. I want to focus on just one. This comes from Exodus chapter 30. God had constructed this tabernacle, this place where he was going to dwell with his people. And he uh, tells Moses, who was leading the people of God, he tells them to do this. He says, You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. With which Aaron, he's a priest, and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, remember that's where God dwells, or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring, throughout their generations. So the idea being, right, that to approach that God We need to be washed. We need to be taken from unclean to clean to worship this holy God. And that idea of being clean and unclean, that distinction, we're going to return to that later on. But what I want you to see is that baptism in the Old Testament, baptism in the Old Testament was a washing, taking someone from unclean to clean, a ceremonial washing. That's the first component to baptism. It's not new. It would have been known and recognized by the people before Jesus, And as we move into the New Testament, right, this old practice gets a new significance. The second component we see, the second puzzle piece, is that baptism is a sign of God's covenant. Baptism is a sign of God's covenant. And you remember last week, right, Abraham, perfect example. He believed in God, and then he received the sign of God's covenant with his people. It was a sign of his special relationship with God. And you might be asking, well, then what does that have to do with baptism, that was circumcision. Well, if we look in Colossians chapter 2, this is another letter that Paul had written to another church. He makes it clear there. Speaking to these Colossian Christians, people like us, right? He says, in him, meaning Jesus, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. You have been circumcised, Christians in Colossae, by your baptism. And he continues, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see what Paul is saying. He's taking this Old Testament sign of circumcision. And he's saying it has given way to this New Testament sign for Christians, for believers in Jesus through baptism. The Old Testament sign has given away to the New Testament sign. Now, we just invited some friends over to our house uh, last night, and this girl is like 32 weeks preg- pregnant. She's about to have her kid, uh, who's a baby boy, in eight weeks. And she showed us, you know, this ultrasound picture. Now, I was thinking to myself, you know, you don't carry around an ultrasound picture of your baby once that baby's been born. Like, nobody comes up to you, and nobody says, Hey, do you want to see, you know, my little Daniel? Take a look. Oh, you see the, the, the black splotches You see the the white lines? Nobody, Nobody does that, right? They don't hold up their ultrasound picture to you in order to show you a picture of their born child, right? And the same thing in like manner is true of circumcision. Circumcision pointed forward to a reality that was to come, just as an ultrasound picture points forward to a reality which is to come. Circumcision pointed forward to the people of God That one day, a Savior would come. And just like in circumcision, the foreskin is cut off and thrown away in this bloody ceremony, so too, in the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus was cut off from his people, rejected and despised by men in this bloody crucifixion on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. So you see, we no longer need circumcision because what circumcision pointed forward to in Jesus has finally come. And it's given way to this new sign that points back to the cross of Jesus. A new sign of the covenant has appeared, the sign of baptism. And there are lots of verses that point to this. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we see just how important this sign is. Jesus himself in the Great Commission saying to his disciples, his apostles, his church, this is what you're supposed to do. He says in this Great Commission, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, teach them, make disciples, tell them my word, tell them to follow what I've commanded and baptize them as this new sign of my covenant people. That's why Peter, Peter, when he's preaching his first sermon in the book of Acts, the people, they want to respond, and they ask Peter, what shall we do to be saved? And the apostle Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You hear the gospel, you respond, and you're baptized. And then Paul Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, talking about this new sign, he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. It's no longer just the Jews baptized into Abraham or circumcised into Abraham. Instead, we're all baptized. Jews, Greeks, slave, free, male, female, all were made to drink of one spirit. Circumcision has given way to the new sign of God's people. Baptism is now the sign of God's people given in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those are the two components that we see. It's this ceremonial washing as a sign of God's covenant people. Third puzzle piece is the last one, is that baptism is a seal. It's a seal. Now, a seal in the Bible, it would have been most familiar to people as a ring that a king would keep on his hand. And it was a ring that had his signature on it. It was his stamp of authority. So if he wanted to make a decree, if he wanted to make a piece of legislation come to pass, what he would do is he would write that down, he would put a blob of wax at the bottom, and then he would take that seal and he would press it into the hot wax. And what that would signify is that this is my decree given by my authority and given my stamp of authenticity. You know this decree comes from me. And now we have seals today, right? So you have diplomas. My wife went to Pepperdine because she's smarter than I am. She has this diploma from Pepperdine. And it says that by virtue of Pepperdine University, Hannah has all the rights and privileges of a Pepperdine graduate. That's the seal. That's what it means. And so she can use that seal and all the authority behind it. She can write down she is a Pepperdine from a Pepperdine graduate. She can go to alumni events. She has all the rights and privileges of a Pepperdine graduate. Baptism as a seal gives us, as a mark of Jesus' people, that we have been adopted into his family and have all the rights and privileges as children of God. That is what baptism represents it's a sign and a seal. And so, when you take these three components, right, these three puzzle pieces, put them together, we have baptism as a Trinitarian washing with water, marking the people of God as a sign and seal of God's covenant. Is anybody else thinking, this is super complicated? Are you serious? Like, this this seems like a lot of work just to get to an understanding of what baptism is. And I'm sure maybe some of you are feeling that way. But I want you to take a sigh of relief, right? That when the Bible does talk about important things, sometimes it makes us go through this puzzle-making route. So, for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, there is no verse that just says the Trinity is X, or God is triune. Instead, we take all the various component parts, that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But nonetheless, we see John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Referring to Jesus, that he is the Son of God, he was with God, but he is God. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. So we have these three persons are supposed to be one god. So the trinity is the most biblical thing in the world. However, there's nothing explicit that says god is trinity. So if you feel like hey, this is really complicated, I'm kind of getting lost in the weeds, that's okay. Realize that the bible sometimes makes us do this to talk about important things. And here's what I want you to see as important as what Bi- the bible says about baptism and what it is, what's more important is what it represents. Okay, so that's our second point. What does the baptism represent? What does baptism represent? Now, we can say a lot of things about this. I just want to highlight two of them. First, baptism represents the forgiveness of sins. It's a sign and seal of the forgiveness of sins. And we see this in several passages throughout the Bible, right? And remember, we talked about baptism being this washing, taking somebody from unclean to clean. And now in the Bible, to be clean or unclean doesn't have to do with our bodily hygiene or our clothes. Instead, it has to do with having access to God. If a person is unclean, it meant they didn't have access to God. If they were clean, it meant they did have access to God. So if you think of it, you want to go to an avalanche game, okay? And you have a ticket. That can give you access to the avalanche game. You can go, you can sit in your seat, you can be among the fans, you can watch and play. Same thing in the Bible, to be clean means you can go into the temple, you can worship the God who's in that temple, you can be among the people of God, and you can participate in the covenant that God is making with his people. And to be unclean meant you were cut off, you could not be a part of that ceremony, you were ritually unpure and you couldn't approach this God. And the Bible talks about this being washed over and over and over again. We see it most pronouncedly in Psalm 51, written by King David, where he says, "...have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What David is trying to get us to see is that sin is like a stain of blood on our garments that nothing we do, nothing we try, can actually remove it from us in our own power. Sin, this moral blot on our souls, needs to be washed and removed from us if we're going to approach a holy God. I'm reading this book. It's called Crime and Punishment by Fedor Dostoevsky. It's a phenomenal story about this guy named Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov is this Russian student who lives in St. Petersburg, and he's running out of money and he can't continue his studies. So he decides he's going to murder this old lady who runs a pawn shop. And he sneaks into her apartment, he murders her, and then as he's murdering her, another one of uh, this woman's sisters comes in and he murders her as well to leave no trace. And he rummages this area, steals a few items, and he leaves in the darkness of night. And as he gets back to his apartment, it's dark, he tries to fall asleep, but he's jolted awake thinking, did I clean all the blood off of me? And so, in this tiny, cramped apartment, he goes up to a window sill that has a shining moonlight in it, and he's looking over his coat, he's looking over his pants and on his boots to see if any blood remained from the murder that he just committed. And seeing none, he falls back asleep, but then, as soon as he's about to fall asleep, he's jolted with the reminder that I stole the woman's pocketbook, which was soaked in blood, and I put that in my pocket. And so he pulls out his pocket, and what do you know? It's soaked and coated in dried blood. So he cuts it out, and he tries to remove it. But then he thinks he had holes in his shoes, and he stepped in a puddle of blood carelessly. So he looks at his sock, and he realized that that's coated in blood as well, and he tries to get rid of that. And what Dostoevsky's trying to hammer home is this idea, right, that the washing of Raskolnikov's clothes cannot get rid of a much deeper moral defilement that he has within his conscience on his soul he needs to be washed he needs to be cleansed his conscience and his heart is screaming out against him and i like the words of stephen charnock stephen charnock's a prolific puritan author he says every person's conscience testifies that he is unlike what he ought to be even when our sins are unknown to any but ourselves Even when our friends and companions have justified our acts, even when we haven't broken any human laws, we still have an accuser, judge, and executioner in our own breast, in our hearts. I remember there was this situation that I faced in college. You know, I had been attending church. I had been curious about Jesus. And I remember this situation happened at a party that I was at that my friends saw and that I forgot about, and they woke me up the next morning, and they said, hey, this is what you did the night before. And I remember thinking about how there was not a hole dark enough, and there was not a cave deep enough that I could escape to, to remove what my conscience was screaming out to me. And I realized in that moment, even though I was just curious about Jesus before and curious about church before, I realized in that moment, I need something to purify my soul. Nothing can get rid of this apart from the supernatural work of God. Baptism, this great washing, is a visible sign and seal that your sins can be cleansed, they can be forgiven by Jesus Your sins can be washed away by Jesus' blood and you can be made clean and you can be given access to God who will never forsake you and never abandon you no matter what shameless deeds that you've committed. It's not just that our sins need to be washed away. The Bible also presents us with this other problem that we need new spiritual life. And baptism we also see is a sign and seal of regeneration baptism is a sign and seal of regeneration another word for that is just new birth and there's one of the most famous passages in this comes from jesus jesus is approached by this man he's a teacher of israel his name is nicodemus who approaches him in the middle of the night and he comes up to him he's asking jesus questions and jesus answers him truly truly i say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god And Nicodemus is thinking literally here, right? So he goes to the literal. He says, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. See, what Jesus shows so clearly here is that we need to be spiritually brought back to life we need to be spiritually born again regenerated if we are ever going to enter the kingdom of God or have a relationship with God that's why Jesus uses that word flesh flesh in the Bible means to be spiritually unresponsive and to be spiritually dead to be spiritually dead and what we need is to be regenerated brought back to life, taken from spiritual death in the flesh to spiritual life in the spirit. And Jesus says, that this is ironic that Nicodemus doesn't get this, by the way, because Nicodemus responds with a question and says, how can these things be? And Jesus' response to him is, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Nicodemus, you're a teacher of all people. You should understand this. This has always been God's plan, to pour out His Spirit on spiritually dead people and give them new life through His Son, Jesus. This is always God's plan. And the reason that this is so important is that the new spiritual life that people get by the pouring out of God's Spirit is a living picture of what is going to happen at eternity when God will bring the dead resting in their grave to life in the resurrection. And on that day, those who believed in Jesus and were reborn into his kingdom by his spirit will receive eternal life through faith in him. And those who are raised but were never regenerated with spiritual life will spend an eternity apart from him in hell. Nicodemus, this is like the central teaching of the Bible. It's about eternity. It's about life and death. It's about whether you have spiritual life in you or not. I love what my professor said. He's a professor from college. He said, Jesus did not come to make good people better, but to make the dead alive. I love that. See, following Jesus is not about becoming better although he will make us better. It's not about how we do certain things. It's about God supernaturally bringing people back to life, to have faith in him and eternal life with him. Have you ever asked yourself why mental health, depression, anxiety, suicide rates have all risen in our culture? One of the reasons, you know, we could say, hey, it's the effects of social media, technology, social isolation, and that's fair. Those are all causes for sure. But I would submit to you that those symptoms really just reveal a greater underlying spiritual problem. This this problem that the purpose for which we have been created has been cut out from under us. That we were created to produce spiritual life and to have spiritual life in God. And we have completely cut out our purpose from our lives. We are missing the purpose that we were created for. Again, Stephen Charnock says, Man has disposed of the noble purpose for which he was created, to serve God and have our satisfaction in him, to seek God and be rewarded by him. He that departs from this withdraws from his own nature. What contentment can any man have when he runs from his created purpose, opposes his own nature, and denies God for whom he was created? What hope does he have other than sinking into the very depths of brutishness. Charnock is saying we are spiritually dead. We've disposed of our purpose as a society and as individuals, and we're seeking satisfaction and contentment in anything and anyone other than God, and the result is that we've lost ourselves. We were made for spiritual life, and now all that flows from us is spiritual Death. And unless something changes, that death will continue on until eternity. Baptism reminds us then that Jesus alone... By his spirit poured out on us can give us spiritual life. That Jesus alone by his spirit can restore us as image bearers of God to live for his purpose. And Jesus alone by his spirit will raise us up on the last day and give us a kingdom that he earned on the cross in our behalf. This Trinitarian washing is a sign and a seal of God's covenant people as a reminder of his blood, of his spirit, and of his resurrection from the dead, which gives us all of the benefits of it. And that's what we rehearsed earlier in the service, right? Titus chapter 3, Aaron reminded us of this in the assurance of pardon. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, in summary, spiritually dead. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior Jesus appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing Of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified, forgiven and righteous before God, by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is what baptism is about. It shows us of all of our need to be found in Jesus So we've answered two questions, what and what? Okay, what is baptism? What does it represent? Now the who, and this is where I get in trouble, right? Who should be baptized? Well, we believe, we are Presbyterian, which means we are paedo-baptists, which means we believe in infant baptism. So briefly put, it means we believe that believers in Jesus Christ who have faith in him should receive baptism along with their children. And the natural question that usually arises in this is, well, why children? Doesn't the Bible only show believer baptisms? The Bible doesn't mention infant baptism, at least not explicitly. And it doesn't show us baptizing anybody who doesn't have faith. So isn't the practice of infant baptism unbiblical? And yes, I want to say this. On the one hand, it is true that the Bible nowhere explicitly mentions a bab- or commands the baptism of infants. Yet, on the other hand, The Bible nowhere explicitly forbids or condemns infant baptism, so we have this catch-22. Now, I want you to realize also in this that the idea that infant baptism is unbiblical because it's not commanded or explicit, that argument actually cuts both ways. Because nowhere in the Bible is there an explicit command that we should baptize only believers to the exclusion of children. And here's what I want us to keep in mind, right, that In the Bible, just because something isn't mentioned or commanded explicitly, it doesn't mean that it is therefore unbiblical to practice it or to believe it. So just because the Bible doesn't mention something explicitly does not mean it's unbiblical. Let me give you just one example. The Bible nowhere gives us an example of or commands of us that women should receive communion. Jesus, during the Last Supper, right, was surrounded by 12 men, 12 apostles, and he said, take, eat, this is my body, given for you, as a covenant meal. And nowhere is it commanded that women, you should take take, uh, the Lord's Supper. Nonetheless, we all know by implication and we know by uh, uh, assumption that women are members of the covenant. Therefore, they should take the covenant meal. And we believe that same thing That by implication, infants in baptism should receive baptism because it would have been assumed by the earliest followers of Jesus. And now, you might be asking, well, why would it be assumed? Well, remember what baptism was. Go back to our definition. It was a sign of God's covenant. And Abraham, remember? Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Abraham believed God... And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. It was a sign of God's covenant. But you might be saying, well, but Abraham believed and then he was circumcised. Well, yes. But that would be to miss the entire full context that the Bible gives us in the story of Abraham. Because in Genesis chapter 17, we see clearly what God's intent was. He says, "'This is my covenant with you, Abraham, "'which you shall keep between me and you "'and your offspring after you. "'Every male among you shall be circumcised. "'You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, "'and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. "'He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. "'Every male among your generations, "'whether born in your house or bought with your money "'from any foreigner who is not of your offspring.'" Both he who is born in your house, he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. See, that was the practice of the people of God for thousands and thousands of thousands of years. The children of believers received the sign of God's covenant. Now, why was it not commanded in the New Testament then? Well, it was assumed, the implication was clear, that the children of believing households should receive the sign of God's covenant. And once you see those implications, they start showing up everywhere throughout the Bible, by the way. Genesis 17, that verse we just read, those verses, when it commands male children to be circumcised five times in verses 12, 13, 23, and 27, it mentions this word household, 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 household. And then in Acts chapter 16, there's the story of a Philippian jailer who has imprisoned Paul and Silas in a Philippian jail. And we're told there that during that, the Philippian jailer asked, How can I be saved? Here's Paul's response. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And they took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and they rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. See, it's an implied echo from the Old Testament. The households that would receive the sign of God's covenant in the Old Testament, Israel, now gives way to his New Testament people whether Jew or, sl- or Greek, slave, free, husband, wife, m- uh, woman, or male. It's extending this New Testament sign to all people who believe in their households. But here's the, here's the most important passage about really just the importance of children to God's people. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse 14. And we have to say, this is an enigmatic passage, by the way. All right? It's not altogether clear what Paul is really getting at, but we know this. He's talking about spouses, right? One of which is a believer, the other one is not. And notice what Paul says. He says, "The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." They're holy. That means God has set them apart as his covenant people. They are different from those who are not in covenant households and families. And here's the thing. As wretched as my children are, and they are wretched. They are holy before God. God looks at them as his covenant children. And he says... As my covenant children, they ought to receive the sign of membership in the covenant. That's why, again, Peter in Acts chapter 2, remember his, his famous Pentecost sermon? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Adults who come to faith in Jesus for the first time do need to be baptized, and we do baptize them, right? They should be baptized because it's commanded that they would be baptized. And in fact, that is the pattern that we see in the New Testament in the book of Acts, that first-time believers of first-generation households believe in Jesus, and then they're baptized for their belief in Jesus, but nowhere in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, do we see that a child born into a Christian household is not baptized. And then when they turn at age 16 or 17 or 18, when they can make a faith, uh, faithful declaration in Jesus, then they're baptized. If that were the case, then that would be the nail in the coffin for believers only baptism. We would have to conclude that only believers are supposed to be baptized. But we never see that. That would prove that it's only believers who are to be baptized. And here's the thing. I want to be candid here, right? So people who believe in believers-only baptism, I believe that their intentions are good. That might be some of you. I believe your intentions are good. I do. So I'm not not saying, hey, this is being disparaging on maybe your personal belief. And I know people want baptism to be special. They want their children to remember baptism. They want to seek to be biblical. I was baptized as an adult, by the way, so I get that. But I do think that even though the effort is to be biblical and there's sincerity in it, I often think that our intentions to be biblical allows for an unintentional, unbiblical practices to start to enter in. So, for instance, a lot of the desire to hold on to believers-only baptism, along with what usually comes up with that, is this idea of an age of accountability, This idea that there's a certain threshold or a certain age when a child's able to make a profession of faith and that they can then make a faith promise and that therefore they should be baptized then. But an age of accountability, friends, just just does not appear in the Bible. And then there's another practice of baby dedication, which I have friends, I have family members that have dedicated their babies. I'm not disparaging any sort of intention here, but that practice is nowhere in the Bible. So I think, you know, this desire to be biblical, we can unintentionally allow unbiblical practices to enter in. And I want you to hear two things. If you are a believers-only Baptist, I want you to hear two things. And I mean this sincerely from the bottom of my heart. You are so wrong. I'm just kidding, by the way. (laughs) But I'm not. I think you are wrong. But nonetheless, here's what I really want to say to you. Hey, if you believe in this, would you wrestle with your beliefs? Would you wrestle and pour over scripture, ask your questions? Would you please go to bat on what the Bible says on this? Because of all the things we should care about, it's that our beliefs and our practices are drawn from scripture. So wrestle over this. I would encourage you to do that. And now, this brings us to our last point. We're going to do this quickly. We've got about five minutes here. What should we take from all this? So what? What should we take from all this? Well, there are a lot of practical questions about the Bible and about baptism that I can't answer in full detail, but usually some practical questions that we hear are, you know, how many times should I be baptized? Or, you know, I don't remember my baptism, or I have newfound faith, should I be baptized again? And here's the thing I want you to see, that much like the question of who should be baptized, I think a lot of these practical questions stem from a misunderstanding about what baptism is. Remember our definition of baptism, that baptism is a sign and a seal. The question is, what is it a sign of? Where is it pointing? Where does the sign point to? Right. You have a stop sign, and it points to stop. You have a yield sign, and it points to allow the traffic to go by you. So which way does the sign of baptism point? Many believe that baptism is a sign of our faith, our public declaration, our personal decision, our individual faith. In other words, the sign of baptism points to me, my faith, my choice, my commitment. But as we've seen, friends, that is completely backwards. Baptism does not point to us. It points to Jesus his Holy Spirit. And here's why that matters so much, because there will come a time when your faith, your sincerity, your commitment, all of these things will waver, they will diminish, they will become insincere, and they will be next to zero. There will come a moment in your life That you will sin so intentionally, so high-handedly, so brazenly that you're going to think God wants nothing to do with you and no amount of faith you will find in yourself. But baptism, if it does not point to your faith and points to Jesus, then you can be reminded every time you witness a baptism that God does not give baptism for the faithful, but God gives baptism to the unfaithful. It points to a God who is faithful to us. In spite of our hypocrisy, in spite of our lack of commitment, in spite of our lack of desire to follow him, God is faithful to us. The sacrament points to Jesus. And he gives the sacrament of baptism to hypocrites because he's got no one else to give it to. And now, there are a lot of different people in different places here this morning. So there are a lot of different questions. I want to let you know, just as we leave here this morning, we're going to have a baptism class. This baptism class is going to start November 1st. That's next Sunday. It's going to happen after third service. So come to that. If you've never been baptized, come, learn more, hear about baptism, share your testimony, and you need to be baptized. So hear that call. If you've never been baptized and you believe in Jesus, you need to get baptized. And come to our baptism class to learn more about it. If you have children who haven't been baptized, then come, learn more. Have them baptized, right? Go through that process and ask questions about what that would look like. If you're a student in our student ministry and you've never placed faith in Jesus, then come. Come. Do so and be baptized. And then if you're just not sure, you have no idea what you should take away from this or you still just are confused and have a lot of questions, then come, learn more, ask questions, be a part of the class, hear other people's questions and join us for baptism class. You can learn more by visiting the Next Step table outside or again, you can text BAPTISM to 720-782-6600. I never thought I'd finish a sermon giving you a phone number, but there it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, We thank you again for your new mercies. We thank you for this great reminder of the biblical teaching of baptism. God, I pray that this would be important to us. I pray that we would see it as deeply important. Thank you, God, most of all, that this sign of baptism points to Jesus because that is what we need. He is the one who can save. It's by his blood and his spirit that we're given forgiveness of sins, new life, and eternal life. And I pray we would have great confidence in the work that you're doing in our life, we would have great confidence in the baptisms we've received, that we would trust and have confidence in Jesus. And God, we pray that you would make this something that we would really reflect on and wrestle over. And I pray, God, if there are any people who disagree with this or any people who have objections, that they would not hear me being objectionable, but they would bring those objections and those questions to bear, and we would discuss them together as the family of God covenant members of your great saving work through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.